Welcome to the Rear Primary View, where we cover the latest developments in high-yield distressed debt and bankruptcy, and feature discussions on issues affecting distressed debt, leverage finance, direct lending, high-yield bonds, high-yield municipals, covenants, private credit, and middle market companies. I'm David Zupkis. This week, REORG Simon Schatzberg speaks with Eduardo Ordonez Bueso, an emerging markets debt portfolio manager at Bank Invest in Copenhagen. They discuss the outlook for Argentina's sovereign debt and the upcoming presidential elections on November 19th. And as always, we bring you our weekly summary of interesting developments in the restructuring world, as well as a preview of what's on tap for next week. REORG is hosting an in-person event, Opportunities and Trends Across Performing Credit and CLOs, on November 16th at the Intercontinental New York Barclay, New York. The program, which begins at 3.30 p.m., will cover critical topics in performing credit, including a performing credit trends panel, a presentation on the media sector, and a CLO fireside chat with leaders in the performing credit space, including Shiloh Bates, Managing Director at Flat Rock Global, Robert Campbell, Managing Director at KKR, and Bala Ramakrishnan, Managing Director of Research at Onyx Credit. We'd love to hear your feedback to help us improve the podcast experience, so please take a moment to complete the short survey at the link attached to this podcast and let us know how we're doing. It's Monday, November 13th. Welcome to the Reorg Primary View. My name is Simon Schatzberg, and I'm a reporter at Reorg covering debt markets in Latin America. Today, we're joined by Eduardo Ordonez Hueso, who's gonna help us understand the situation of the sovereign debt of Argentina. Eduardo is an emerging markets debt portfolio manager at Bank Invest in Copenhagen, where he covers corporate and sovereign bonds in Latin America. For anyone interested in that area, I would recommend checking out Eduardo's monthly LATAM update LinkedIn posts. Welcome, Eduardo. Uh, thank you, thank you for the chat and for the free advertising. So, Argentines will go to the polls on November 19th to choose a new president. And whoever wins is going to face a challenging scenario related to the economy and the country's debt load. But before we get to the election, Eduardo, could you kind of lay out that scenario, what the economic and fiscal outlook looks like? So this is a country that has pretty much monthly inflation of 12%. This is a country that is running out of dollars. This is a country that has uh, debt to GDP metrics that you would never really believe a country should have. So all in all, it's on the edge of some kind of credit event, economic collapse, popular unrest, you name it, right? So it's a very fragile, fragile state to be in or condition for the country. They haven't been lucky with uh, the weather. You know, they export a lot of grains. And uh, it's everything has been pointing against them. And politics have been very central to the whole situation. Politics have been the cause of many of the economic problems. So there is hope, or there used to be hope, that this election would pretty much be an opportunity for change. Can we break down kind of what the debt profile looks like and what could be some of the possible triggers for a credit event in the next few years? So this country has roughly somewhere in the vicinity of $50 billion they owed to the IMF. By the way, this number exceeds what they should be allowed to have based on the quotas they have paid into the institution. But in any case, that's where it is. Then you might have anywhere from, you know, 20 to 30 billion-ish hard currency debt. And then you have a lot of local currency debt in the system in different formats and flavors and issued to different parties. So 
it's it, it's it's a very very sort of tricky situation to be in right then the problem here is local debt they've been servicing they've been restructuring sometimes in aggressive ways but you know it's easier with the locals they've been printing money they've been convincing the locals to take the new papers that's been under control external debt you need dollars to pay for that and if you're not exporting then you're not bringing in dollars to the country exports have been collapsing and uh, depends who you ask depends what numbers you look at some people argue net reserves are either you know close to zero or magically negative, if that's even possible. Others say they might have some levers to pull with you know the Chinese or multilateral agencies, but it's all very limited. It's all a week to week, month to month basis kind of situation where you have to, you know, hope that they will find some other source of funding to close a gap for that you know specific maturity they face. So in all likelihood, you know, this combination of of ingredients doesn't bode well for debt sustainability, as you know, one PIMF likes to define it. And for investors, it increases the likelihood of a credit event down the road. Uh, you can see that in the valuation of the hard currency sovereign paper, which has been very depressed, mostly trading on what they call current yield, which is what you would say how much you earn out of investing in this paper for one year if they service the debt if they stay current for one year. And uh, yeah, again, it can be, a, you know, they surprise us and suddenly they perform a lot of market-friendly reforms. You never know, but hope is not really high. It's become more of a show me first, prove to me first that you can do this or that. Then we can reward that with higher valuations. And in the meantime, let's hope no credit event takes place, right? So now coming back to the election, as we're recording on November 7th, polls show a close race between the current economy minister, Sergio Massa, who surprised many observers by winning the first round a few weeks ago, and the outsider libertarian economist, Javier Millet. Can you kind of summarize who these two candidates are and how you might expect each of them to deal with the problems of the debt? Well, uh, we have Javier Millet, he's an outsider to politics. He used to be an economist in the private sector. He has recently entered politics as a congressperson and his brand has been fire and fury, channeling the anger of the masses who are disenchanted with the political system. They see him as an outsider who will bring uh, finally, you know, transparency and uh, rational decision-making into the country. He doesn't have much in the way of elaborate proposals beyond you know big ticket items like let's get rid of the central bank let's get rid of our currency let's enact a dramatic fiscal adjustment headline creating you know kinds of messages but with a lot of you know weaknesses once you start to study them in depth you know so and then there's the other problem that he has is that he's not an easy person to work with so he's prone to clashing with a lot of people so there's a lot of questions about governability if he were to win the presidency on the other side, you have Mr. Massa, and he has been in politics for a long time. He's a member of the Peronist Party. He has collaborated with Christina Kirchner, with the Kirchnerista movement. He has taken on different roles throughout different administrations. Now he had been a little bit in, you know, behind the scenes for a long time until he entered this administration as the what they call the super economy minister, who pretty much has amazing powers beyond just the traditional roles of the of this kind of ministry. 
And he is considered to be in the Argentinian press as a very sophisticated political operator, very detail-oriented. He's very well known across the political spectrum, across the private sector. And he's very savvy. He's very, very known in, in to be a, into clever deal-making. And some people argue that he's more willing to abandon the, the far, far left policies in terms of economic policy and move a little closer to the center. And uh, that's that's where the debate is. How close to the center? We don't know because he's really hard to predict. No one thought he had a chance, but he surprised everyone in the in the first round of the elections because he has been using the system to sort of, you know, sell his brand. He got rid of income taxes for a significant part of the population. He increased wages for a lot of public sector employees. He pretty much gave out a lot of uh, political goodies at the expense of the economy. So now people are thinking he has a higher chance of winning the elections. How do the markets seem to be responding to each of these candidates? I think initially the markets thought that because Millet came from the right, because Millet is an economist, therefore, even though he seemed a little, uh, you know, radical in the end, he would just do no clever, logical things that everyone would like. But that impression has washed away. And what is more concerning now is a lack of governability he could face and the paralysis that would induce, which would actually not be good in the context of an economy that's collapsing, right? It's one thing to say we like paralysis in the U.S. Congress, but you have the U.S. economy behind you operating, you know, no problems. It's a different thing if it happens in Argentina where you actually need serious decision making in the short run. So how would you expect each of them to possibly deal with these problems? Oof. I, in Argentina, it's really hard to see far into the future. My hunch would be that if Mr. Massa is the winner, he can very easily present himself as a center, even moderately right-wing uh, official for some time. He might score so some quick victories, some low-hanging fruit. Things might look better for some time, but he can also easily flip back into, you know, unorthodox left-wing economic policies that the markets really don't like. So in my view, he wins. That means volatility both ways, up and down, with a certain frequency, depending on the headlines. If Mr. Millet wins, I think he would have some very confused, you know, investors for some time until he gives signals, signals of who he's talking to, who are his friends, who he's building alliances with, especially because he wouldn't have a strong presence in Congress, officially at least, and seeing if he can actually manage to sort of keep that character under control and stick to the to the work. And that would be, again, a show-me story first. So assuming that Massa wins, do you think he would be well-positioned to carry out the necessary reforms? I think, yeah. But I don't know how far he would go. Because, say, you can make an adjustment and fix the fiscal accounts up to a certain extent and improve your ability to service debt in the short run and things might look good. Will that be enough to service all the debt? Probably not. Would that help the population? Sure. Would that improve the creditworthiness of the country in the short run? A little bit. But it won't really fix the problem. The kind of adjustment depends on your assumptions, of course, right? But if you build a model, the kinds of adjustments that would be required, no politician would be able to enact in any country, right? 
So I think they need some collaboration from investors and the IMF. Of course, the IMF will not take a haircut, at least not in the way we recognize it. But I think international investors will have to accept that recovery rates will not be as generous, especially in, with the context of the external you know, environment decelerating and the pressure of having this big debt load with the IMF there in the background. So, so you think maybe it's kind of, there's kind of no way to prevent a restructuring? No, no. I think it's more a matter of when than a matter of if. And when, do you think? Next year? The year? Uh, yeah. If I knew, I would be loading up <laughs> on bonds right now, but he knows. Okay, well, th thank you so much, Eduardo. No problem. Thank you for the call. In court coverage this week, we take a look at WeWork, Diamond Sports Group, FTX Group, Purdue Pharma, and Anagram Holdings. Flexible office space provider WeWork filed Chapter 11 in New Jersey early Monday after executing a restructuring support agreement with holders of approximately 92% of the company's pre-petition secure notes. SoftBank, an ad hoc group representing approximately 87% of the company's Series 1 first lien and second lien notes, and Kupar Grimund, a Series 3 first lien note holder, have all signed on to the deal. The RSA contemplates the full equitization of the company's 1L notes, 2L notes, and the LC facility, which the debtors say will reduce $4.2 billion of funded debt by about $3 billion. In parallel, the debtors are optimizing their extensive lease portfolio. They project that right-sizing the leases will drive positive cash EBITDA in 2024 and beyond. We were obtained interim cash collateral relief at a consensual first hearing before Judge John K. Sherwood on Wednesday, during which counsel urged landlords to come to the table. Diamond Sports Group debtors announced they have secured a cooperation agreement that would allow the regional sports networks to continue broadcasting NBA, NHL, and MLB games through the end of the 2024 MLB season. The agreement would counsel compared to an RSA would, would resolve intercreditor disputes and would allocate proceeds from litigation against former owner Sinclair Broadcast and preferred shareholder J.P. Morgan between secured and unsecured creditors. Council said the cooperation agreement is supported by more than two-thirds of first lien creditors, a subgroup of restricted second lien creditors, and the official committee of unsecured creditors. But MLB, key distributor, DirecTV, and owner litigation target Sinclair are not signatories. A three-judge panel for the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit heard oral arguments on the U.S. trustee's appeal of a bankruptcy court order denying its motion for the appointment of an examiner in the FDX cases. The UST argues the appointment of an examiner was mandatory once requested under the bankruptcy code. The debtors in the UCC assert that the bankruptcy court had discretion to grant or deny the request. The panel took the appeal under advisement without indicating when it will rule. The FTX debtors seek to confirm a plan in June 2024 and to emerge by July 2024. Rework's team continues to delve into the briefs submitted by the U.S. Supreme Court and the U.S. Trustee's appeal of the Second Circuit's Purdue Farmer decision, which upheld non-consensual non-debtor releases in the opioid maker's plan of organization. Purdue and the Unsecured Creditors Committee now argue the court should decline to review the case and dismiss the writ of certiorari as improvidently granted because the USD lacks standing to appeal. Anagram, a foil balloon supplier wholly owned by recently emerged Party City Holdings, sought Chapter 11 protection in the Southern District of Texas on Wednesday. Debtors are pursuing an all-asset sale after negotiations with an ad hoc group holding approximately 60% of the debtors' first lien notes and more than 50% of the debtors' second lien notes failed to secure a consensual restructuring. An entity formed by the ad hoc group, Celebration Bidco LLC, has submitted a stocking horse credit bid of approximately $168.4 million in first lien notes. Anagram operates independently from Party City, which recently emerged from bankruptcy itself, and Anagram seeks to reject three key intercompany contracts with the parent.
At the first day hearing, Judge Marvin Isger granted interim approval of debtors' dip financing from first lien and second lien note holders, unlocking $10 million of a $22 million new money dip notes facility. The judge overruled second lien note holders Silver Point Capital's objection to the aggressive sale timeline required by the dip milestones, which included a new November 30th deadline and a January 28, 24 outside closing date. Anagram's bidding procedures motion is set for hearing on November 20th. Lumen Technologies, 2U Inc., and Explore Inc. ran out this week's crop of near-term restructurings and refinancings, and Inviva Partners hires restructuring advisors. Lumen Technologies' TSA parties are focused on getting Lumen Revolver and TLA A1 lenders on board, as an ad hoc group of Lumen lenders has proposed an alternative backstop and pro rata liability management transaction. In addition, Level 3 has sent a notice to term lenders informing them without any details that the company intends to offer a transaction opportunity to the holders who receive a new term loan. An ad hoc group of 2U 2.25% 2025 convertible note holders that present more than 50% of the tranche sent a term sheet to the online education company on Friday, November 3rd, proposing a potential transaction to address upcoming maturities. The investors proposed swapping all 2025 and 2030 notes for new second lien debt and new third lien convertible debt at par, and if any series is oversubscribed, excess demand will be allocated pro rata to the undersubscribed series. Explore asked lenders and their advisors to sign non-disclosure agreements as a rural broadband service provider seeks new financing, according to sources. The Canadian company is working with Paul Weiss and Goodman's LP as legal advisors and Perla Weinberg Partners as financial advisor, sources added. Gibson, Dunn & Green will represent an ad hoc group of lenders. And Viva engaged Lazard, Alvarez and Marcel, and Vincent Elkins to assist with a comprehensive review of alternatives to strengthen its capital structure, augment liquidity, address contractual liabilities, and increase long-term profitability. On November 2nd, a customer issued a notice of material breach that, if not cured or waived, would allow the customer to terminate its purchase and sale contracts with Enviva and accelerate payments. According to Enviva, failure to make payments under the contract could result in a default under its credit agreement. Top red stories this week included District Court tosses Asbestos Claimants Committee's appeal of first order denying motion dismiss Best Wall Texas two step, distinguishing the true double dip from Pari Plus. Market versus Fed game of chicken continues as Raising Cane's prices debut high yield issue. AMC generates $194 million of adjusted EBITDA, $8 million of free cash flow in Q3, reports $730 million of unrestricted cash at quarter end. And now here's Kate Thomas from New York with the week ahead. Welcome to the week ahead. My name is Kate Thomas. A longer schedule of this week's events, including earnings and court hearings, can be found on the REORG website under America's Week Ahead. But for now, here are a few highlights. Tuesday's calendar is full of disclosure statement hearings. The Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority, or PREPA, Genesis Global, and Core Scientific all have disclosure statements up for approval on Tuesday. On Wednesday, the Diamond Sports debtors will seek approval of their recently announced cooperation agreement and MBA term sheet. The deal would allow the debtors to operate profitably through the end of the 2024 Major League Baseball season while funding an orderly transition of the debtors' business through the Chapter 11 process. The deal would also allow regional sports networks to continue broadcasting NBA, NHL, and MLB games, resolve intercreditor disputes, and allocate proceeds from fraudulent transfer litigation against former owner Sinclair and preferred shareholder J.P. Morgan. At a hearing last week, the debtor said that more than two-thirds of first lien creditors, a subgroup of restricted second lien creditors, and the official committee of unsecured creditors support the cooperation agreement, 
but the MLB, distributor DirecTV, and Sinclair have not signed on to the deal. Also on Wednesday, the Diamond Sports debtors are seeking to extend their exclusive period to file a plan through November 29th and to solicit a plan through January 29th over several objections. The Endo International debtors are also seeking extensions of their exclusive periods, but on Thursday. Specifically, the debtors are seeking exclusivity to file a plan through January 8th and to solicit a plan through March 8th. The debtors' highly anticipated sale hearing is also back on the calendar for this Thursday. Reportedly, however, the debtors have been exploring alternatives to the sale to stocking horse bidder Tensor, including a debt equitization under a Chapter 11 plan. Last up, the Rite Aid debtors have their second day hearing on Thursday, when they will be seeking final approval of their dip financing, including a $2.85 billion ABL revolver, a $400 million Philo facility, and a $200 million term loan, which was already funded on interim approval. Rite Aid's settlement with generic supplier McKesson is also up for final approval on Thursday. Rite Aid filed an adversary proceeding against McKesson to prevent it from terminating their multi-billion dollar supply agreement. Under the settlement terms, McKesson continues to supply pharmaceutical products to Rite Aid, but gets an allowed super-priority admin claim and shortened payment terms during the bankruptcy cases. Judge Michael Kaplan approved the settlement on an interim basis on October 26th with final approval held pending review by the official unsecured creditors committee. That's it for now. For more on the week ahead, including a schedule of earnings releases, check out America's Week Ahead on the Reorg website and have a great week. Thank you again for tuning in to the Reorg Primary Review and our weekly review. Find all our podcasts on the Reorg.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great week and see you next Monday.